Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Raptors Over Everything, a podcast for Yahoo Sports Canada. I'm your host, William Liu. Joining me on this week's episode, a very, very special guest, uh, senior writer at 538, Chris Herring. Welcome. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm not feeling as good after Game 5, but um, honestly, I don't think anyone feels good after Game 5. It's one of the most depressing finals games ever. Like, I've just, even if you watch the Warriors at the post game, you know, they had just won on the road to keep their season alive. Objectively, it's an amazing win for them. And, like, everyone is just super bummed out because of KD. Um, I mean, so I guess I'll just start there. Did anything from Game 5 really change your outlook on the series and how things will shape up between the Warriors and the Raptors? You know, I, I don't know. I, I think before, uh, and I and I think you were there as well, um, there was kind of like a panel discussion we had. Kevin o, uh, O'Connor had a a cancer fundraiser that he did. And so we, a lot of us in Toronto went out and we're kind of talking about the series and literally eight of us that were on the stage at one time, all basically picked the Raptors to win game five and to win the series in game five, um, regardless of whether Durant was going to play or not. But we obviously didn't expect that outcome. Now that they got game five, um, I, I feel like going back to Oracle, literally the last game that they'll ever play in that arena um, and just kind of the Durant, the way the Durant thing unfolded, I don't really know what to expect in terms of how the Warriors will come out. I would expect just playing their last game at Oracle, honestly, will kind of give them an extra boost as well. Um, I don't know if they win because of that. I, I think it's become very clear over the course of the series they're not the better team if Durant's not there. Uh, we could ha- have a, a long conversation about whether they're even, whether the Warriors are slightly better if Durant is playing. Um, but with Durant not there, they're just not a better team. Maybe they get game six. I would think it would be very, very difficult to take game seven if, if it's the Warriors going back to Toronto. But um, but at the same time, I also thought the series was over when Kawhi had that big scoring spurt right there in the fourth. Um, I would have maybe given the Warriors like a 10% chance of winning if you told me that Kawhi was going to have 10 points in a row. They're going to go on a 12-2 run there. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think at this point it's too hard to really predict what will happen. Um, but, I mean, you still have to feel okay if you're the Raptors. You're up 3-2. You've already shown that, you know, you're not afraid to go into Oracle. and You've won two games there. Um, so I think they, they should be in pretty good shape. And I also think, um, you know, they – as long as they don't shoot 25% from three, while also letting the Warriors get 23s as a team, um, you have to feel pretty good about their chances to get one of these next two. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think I feel better about the Raptors hitting more than eight threes than I do about the Warriors hitting less than 20, because I feel like 20 is like doable. But then I look, went back and looked over the tape, and I feel like the Raptors played like pretty good defensively. It was just like... Um, I, I counted at least like three loose balls that like directly led into Warriors threes. One where like Steph took like a mid range shot. Somehow the rebound was really long and it came right back to him and he instantly found Clay. Um, do you feel like that twenty three performance? I mean, just defensively, do you feel like that was more of a reflection of the Raptors' defense not being set, or do you feel like that was just they're the Warriors and they're going to hit twenty threes at some point? I mean, I think part of it, too, is that, you know, Durant was responsible for three of those and, and, you know, hit three of them in the first quarter. So I don't I don't necessarily think that they were bad on defense. I think that, like you said, the, there are a couple of loose balls. And really, when you look at this series as a whole, um, there have been a couple really, really brutal, just kind of backbreaking plays like that from a defensive standpoint for Toronto. Um Obviously, Siakam having one play earlier in the series where he was kind of streaking down the floor um, when Kawhi looked like he might come up with a steal and didn't do it, and, and Livingston obviously caught the pass and then hit Iggy for that three. Same sort of thing where it's, it's basically a, a scramble sort of situation where the ball is kind of looped into the air and you think you might have a play and you don't. Um the Raptors, you know, for how much I've written about it, and I think a lot of other people have kind of written about the lucky rolls and bounces they've get they've gotten and the, the loose balls that they've gotten to, um, there have been a handful of plays that I think they easily could have won the series already if they went the other way. And so their defense hasn't been bad. Um, I think that it was always going to be a challenge to try to defend the Warriors um, with Durant as opposed to without. Um, and I think it's a big shift to go – you know, defending them without Durant there and all of a sudden he's there because you haven't had the floor space that way during the series. So I, I think that they're fine, really. I mean, I think that the Warriors are always going to have spurts where they're able to score and um, spurts where they move the ball as well as they did on that one possession toward the end where, you know, it, it basically looked kind of spursy and almost in the way that they were able to move the ball where Steph dribbles to the corner um, and, you know, Clay ends up with a three. But... You, you don't look at that possession for the most part and say, what are the Raptors doing? You're more thinking about how great the Warriors are and how, how well they're capable of playing when their back is against the wall. Yeah, um, there's like a slow motion replay. I think the NBA uh, official Twitter account put, put out where it's like you could see in very, very real time, like just um, like Steph putting it right behind his back, right as Fred reaches in and – uh, he keeps his dribble, and this is like along the sideline too, so there's not a lot of space. And then Kyle hits him with a quick double team. Steph throws the pass just perfectly over Kyle's like fingertips, and then as the ball touches Iguodala, he immediately swings before he even lands to I think Draymond, and then Draymond you know uh, flips it over to Clay, and Clay has like the presence of mind to let Kawhi fly by before knocking it down. I mean, it's just. Right, it's it's perfect stuff, really. Uh, they are the Warriors. Um, I, I think really, if if you really do break it down, though, it's not even so much as like I agree with you. There is a more, there is a very interesting discussion to be had about you know what the series would have looked like if KD was healthy, or maybe if, even if KD wasn't healthy, but the Warriors had instead of KD like a replacement player um, at that position, and to sort of just compare the two teams. 
But I think, for the most part, a lot of this series just comes down to the fact that most times the Warriors can't really put out five productive players at once. Like, they, you can exactly. usually get to four. Or you can rely on the core three, and then Iguodala's, you know, not great right now, but he's at least acceptable. And then the fifth guy is just always ends up hurting them. And, like, I don't think it's a coincidence that the two games in which the Warriors have won, both of those games, DeMarcus Cousins has given them a big boost and been that fifth guy. So, um, I mean, just... Is that sort of how you're seeing it as well? And, you know, um, if you want to do go into that discussion about what this sort of series would have looked like with a healthy KD, um, or even instead of KD, like a Harrison Barnes, like if this was really just the 2016 Warriors, how that series would have looked. Oh, boy. Um, No, I think you're exactly right with regards to that. I mean, I think that actually was kind of the story. And it was, like you said, I, I fully agree with you on the idea that the series has been difficult to dissect because there's kind of been this, and you know, I don't want to use the word cloud, but um, this kind of pending sort of situation with Durant the whole time um, where you don't want to take too much from the first couple games. If you're aware of the fact that a superstar is going to kind of come back and can change things. Um, But then once it gets to three, one and you've got no room for error anymore, um, obviously we all kind of expected the Raptors to maybe get it done. Durant comes back, and, and I think what we see, even in those 12 minutes that he played, is that even Durant at 60 or 70% um, probably would have been good enough to make this, the series pretty even at that point. And, and I think that speaks both of, of how good he is, but also how poor his replacements are and, and how limited the, the Warriors are in terms of the lineups they can throw out there. Um, man, I, I mean, there was, what was it, game three? I guess the game that Clay didn't play. The fact that the Warriors only made two baskets off the dribble um, that weren't by Steph. I mean, they just don't have wow. enough guys to create their own shot. Yeah. Um, when Clay's not there and when Durant's not there. And I think that um, there, it really shows in their second unit when you're trying to get a breather for Steph because, you know, and, and – Nate Silver, my, my editor at 538, kind of said this, and I thought it was actually a pretty good point. We, we can talk all day long about how many all-stars the Warriors have, but if we're being you know, fair and, and objective about it, Cousins isn't himself consistently, and, you know, and even in the games he's played well, he still had pretty brutal moments. He almost kind of blew the game for them in the last minute, minute and a half alone. Um, and obviously the, the basket interference call – it was kind of a tough one as well, um, or, you know, the ball being on the cylinder, but also the offensive foul. I think he might have had a turnover as well. So, I mean, he's not totally himself. And, and what Nate said um, about Draymond, who obviously is an all-star as well, when you really think about somebody like Draymond, um, we're talking about someone who is a star, and I think it's fair to say that. Defensively, he's clearly a star. He's getting triple-doubles left and right. But if you were to start a franchise, you know, like we, we might call him a top 30 or 40 player. But if you were to start a franchise, like nobody would make him the franchise player. And so when you're talking about kind of a secondary tertiary star, that's fundamentally different than someone that can carry you through a series. And particularly when you're, you know, two of your best three scorers are not there in Durant and, and Clay. And so... This has been a weird series all along, and when you have both of them out, like you had in Game 3, 
Um, Steph can't do it by himself, and, and definitely not against a team that's this balanced. Um, and so having Durant there just as someone really in that first quarter that was just able to shoot the ball, um, the first two threes he made were spot-ups. I think that is a massive difference because when he's not there, particularly when Clay's not there, your best shooter after that is basically Quinn Cook. And Quinn Cook, I think him and McKinney in game four were one of nine and a combined minus 10 um, in like 14 minutes. And Durant by himself in those 12 minutes had 11 points, was three of five, three of three from three, and was, I think, a plus six. And so even just replacing 12 minutes there with Durant making three shots, I mean, that's more production than you probably would have gotten out of anybody else in just 12 minutes, let alone, you know, if he'd played 30 or 35 or whatever he would have played. I was a little surprised, too, by the way, that he played 12 out of the first 14 minutes. I didn't expect him to play for long stretches like that but um especially in the first half like you would think maybe he plays like like maybe 12 minutes in the first half and then on a need to basis maybe he extends his minute second half but 12 or 14 right away is just it's it's honestly kind of careless i think you know we're not doctors but i mean it doesn't make any sense at that point you you would be i mean you're in a muscle situation anyway but you would know exactly how dire it is or it's not once you get to the second half, you know, assuming that if the Warriors are down by five, ten points, it's not that big a deal. Um, understanding that they can obviously get back into a game very quickly. And so I think a lot of us are surprised by that. I mean, I think there's a much larger conversation to be had um, that I think is actually hard to have right now based on who's to blame, how much you blame certain people or certain parties um, without knowing everything. And I mean, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated at some point. We'll be fascinated to kind of hear Durant's perspective on this. If Durant's agent at some point kind of talks about it, um, I imagine that probably can't happen right now for a lot of reasons. But within the next couple of weeks, I mean, we'll, at, at a bare minimum, we'll at least know whether he's going to opt in, whether he chooses to opt out and sign a you know a long-term contract instead. Um, and the idea that if he chooses to opt out um, at that point, you know, whether or not at some point I imagine he will speak pretty openly about the process. It's very clear he wanted to come back. I don't think that he was forced into coming back. You can't do that with someone that, um, you know, is kind of as powerful as Durant is and as good as he is. But I, I, there's no doubt he felt a pressure to come back, whether it was his own, uh, from the team, from people in the media, social media, you name it. Um, and I think there's no doubt that he wouldn't have played if they'd been up three, one, or even if you know, even if it had been two-two or something like that, I don't, I don't know or think he would have played in that situation. And I think it's just horrible. You know, I guess there's some people saying there's no way to know he would have gotten injured, and I understand that. But there's no question that this injury, in my opinion, happened because he, you know, he was playing compromised and was not 100. percent Maybe he was as close as he was going to get for the next couple of weeks, but. Um, it's very clear that he was not completely healed. Uh, and I, I don't feel like this would have happened if he'd been healed. Yeah, and I, I think, honestly, right now, people are still in that phase of just, like, shock and sort of um, uh, anger at the moment. But I, I just don't think people are taking in the scope of the whole thing. Like, he's uh, he's going to be 31 in a month, and he's going to be coming off an Achilles injury. And, like, KD had, like, really had a very good chance to be, like, a top 10 NBA player. 
And for this to be a moment where, I mean, obviously we're pulling for him. Everyone is pulling for him. Um, you know, I think the narrative for KD is completely flipped, even if the narrative was pretty stupid to begin with. But um, it's just it's just a loss for basketball, you know? Like, it's just – he is really one of the most unique players of all time. Maybe the most unique player of all time. A seven-footer that can pull up from 35 feet consistently. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously you got to respect the competitiveness and you got to respect, you know, the situation. But it's just – it's such a regrettable decision. And uh, just – just for the future of basketball, really. Like, it just, it's going to have such a huge effect. And it's going to have a huge effect in free agency as well, because, like, you know, wherever he could have decided to go, chances are that team was going to become instantly a, uh, at least a playoff team and pretty, and pretty formidable, at least in terms of playoff wise. And so it's just going to change so much. And, uh, it's just, you know, it's such a shame. And, and, you know, especially, from the Toronto perspective, like to see the, f- the fans reacting the way that, w- you know, that they did. I mean, it's sort of been talked about a couple of times on this podcast, but uh, it's just, again, like if you're a real fan of the game, there's just, there's just no place for, for that type of reaction. And it's a, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big shame. It really is a big shame. Um, you know, the one thing that actually interested me in terms of just the KD's thing, I mean, do you feel like that kind of validates, I mean, even further validates sort of the load management approach that the Raptors took with Kawhi? Oh, there, there's no question. I mean, I think that's the biggest kind of juxtaposition right now um, that I think you could make. I mean, first of all, you know, someone that um, covered the Knicks, lives in Chicago, you know, grew up. It's weird, I think, covering the NBA kind of, in a, in a way beats the fandom out of you in, in some cases when you're covering a beat and you're there every day and talking to the players and, you know, realize on some level without it having to be nearly as tragic as kind of what happened with KD just now, um, that this is a livelihood for them. This is a career, you know, um, and it's, it's, I always kind of felt like it was in bad taste. I always get invitations to, um, to play fantasy sports and play fantasy basketball. I, I did it one time before I started covering, the NBA and remember winning by quite a bit also, but um, <laughs> it felt like it was kind of unfair to do it given how closely I studied the numbers, but I, I never had any interest in playing it um, after I joined, you know, become a beat writer in the league and I always thought it was weird that like people, the way we, we talk about these guys as if they're video game characters as opposed to real life people. Mm-hmm. And so when you realize it's a career for them and it's a livelihood for them, um, you know, I just kind of feel like on some level, it's so easy for certain people to talk about them as if they're not real people. And, um, just, it's incredible to kind of see the outpouring for Katie on the one hand, but on the other, like the way that people kind of talked about Kawhi, like he was a dog last year for kind of, if you want to call it his conduct, he, I mean, the guy literally never speaks. And so even when people aren't saying anything, you know, that the folks get trashed for it, um, for not voicing an opinion or an explanation when he doesn't really owe us one um, and never really owed us one. Um, I mean, people can force trades for whatever reason they want to when they're that good, the same way that if we want out of a certain job, okay, if someone else makes it a point to hire us at that point, then so be it. Um, and I think that there's a, a huge entitlement among fans. I think there's sometimes an entitlement among media um, in terms of what we feel like we're owed or what we deserve. 
Um, and, and the truth is we don't really deserve anything from that standpoint, particularly when a player who has played at the highest levels, who clearly values winning, um, to, to basically say that something doesn't feel right with my body. And I, I, you know, I, I think the larger conversation that I'm more interested in than the fans or the fans reaction or the media or the media's reaction is kind of the conversation around the team doctors, um, which I feel like it's been more and more interesting over the years in football because of what we've seen with concussions and, and you know, the, the things we've heard about with CTE and the idea that team doctors, you know, and on some level it's in their best interest to be able to get someone back on the field or on the court because it might be in the best interest for the team to try to get somebody back out of the field or on the court. Um, from a winning perspective, particularly when you're in the NBA Finals. And so, you know, I think that's what I find interesting about all this is that Kawhi, um, you know, did something that I imagine is very hard to do. Just basically said, like, I'm not playing because mm-hmm. uh, I don't feel right, regardless of whether he was cleared or not. And, I, you know, I've watched that play out from afar with the Bulls and with Derrick Rose. And, you know, I, I just – I feel like when – guys are actually validated from the standpoint of I don't feel right or I'm going to take my time until I feel right. And then they get skewered for it and then they get hurt. And then it's almost like forgotten about. Now it won't be forgotten about this case with Durant because this was the finals and because Kevin Durant, but with Rose, he did that. And I feel like, you know, a a huge portion of the city I live in now just skewered him for it. The radio Mm -hmm. folks did. There were people that wrote really scathing things about him. And similar to Kawhi, a lot of it was kind of because the guy either didn't say much or when he did speak about it, wasn't the most articulate about it. Um, But then tore his knee up two more times after that. And so it was kind of like maybe Derrick Rose knew what he was talking about in terms of not feeling completely right or maybe his body being, you know, more fragile than you would hope um, for kind of what he'd accomplished. And so – you know, it's not like anybody is going to have anything to say or offer someone when they're wrong about an opinion like that, talking about what someone should or should not be doing with their body with regards to not feeling right in their body. So, I, you know, to Kawhi's point, um, I, I'm really, really happy that he did what he did. I mean, winning a championship would be the sweetest validation you could get. But also seeing Durant go down, uh, you know, you could tell from listening to Kawhi how awful he seemed to feel about the whole situation too, because he's saying, I know what it feels like to not feel right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, think about the pressure that Durant must've felt in a situation like that. Again, regardless of who we felt it from or, you know, Durant obviously signed off on the idea of playing too, and it has to take some responsibility for that. Um, But I, you know, I just think that it, it could not be a greater juxtaposition than what we saw last night when you consider just what's happened in the last year um, with Kawhi and his decision and where he's ended up and, and Durant and his choice to play and the idea that you do that and it's to please fans and it's to please a team and all sorts of other stuff. But at the end of the day, Durant is the one that has to deal with the ramifications of that. And, you know, I guess the Warriors to some extent, but, um, you know, Durant, that's his body. And, and so it's just crazy to think that people, you know, continue to, to feel that way. And I feel like it gets forgotten in a lot of situations, like with the Rose case. I, I hope it makes people more cognizant of that stuff, but I don't, you know, I don't have a whole lot of faith 
than that for a lot of fans. Yeah, look, I, I wish that, like, at least in our part from the as, as media, like, because you know, obviously, if, maybe it's not necessarily people like us who are you know you know write pieces and um, aren't necessarily offering as much commentary, but um, like, there should just be a hard line of if a guy says he's hurt, then he's hurt. Like there has to be there, this questioning of whether a guy's hurt because, and he's not playing because of ulterior motives because of this and that. Like I get why it could be juicy gossip in terms of just like, Hey, that could be a great talking point to make people, you know, uh, click a link or something. But like, ultimately you just have to have some kind of rules, right? Like at some point you just got to respect something like, you know, and that goes for both the team and also for media. Is just if a player says he's hurt, then you just got to respect that he's hurt. Like, particularly nope. in the NBA Finals. I mean, yeah. if we're talking about if we're talking about like the preseason, we're talking about a game against the Nets in in, in January, February. Fine, and even then, you know, I think you, we've more than gotten a clear enough sense, just even from Kawhi this year alone, that that might be beneficial too to rest i mean within reason yeah uh, or what comes later and you know from Kawhi, and you know i think if, if there's anything that Kawhi did um see firsthand that was beneficial up until that last year that he was with spurs the idea that that pop was always really really liberal about resting guys and that he consistently seemed to kind of get the best out of his teams during the playoffs so i you know i, I just kind of and I just feel like it's like a really ham-fisted sort of belief that people have. I also think that it's the sort of thing that people don't realize how difficult it is. Like the whole time as we talk about how Durant at 70% is better than anybody else at 100 um, that, you know, could have replaced him. That's true. But him at 70% doesn't mean that he's going to be able to guard Kawhi Leonard. I mean, Kawhi is literally shoving people back eight and nine feet when he decides he wants to drive aggressively. Like, you know, there there were some jokes and some that I don't think were jokes about Kevon Looney trying to stay in front of him on plays and the idea that that was how Kevon Looney's uh, collarbone got injured because Kawhi is just applying that much force to his chest. Again, I you know, I don't think that that's actually the case, but I I mean the fact that we can even joke about it or, or some people will be serious about it, I mean, if you're not healthy, you can't guard someone that is having one of the best postseasons of all time. You also probably can't dribble past someone that is having one of the best postseasons of all time if you're not right, even if you're Durant. I mean, just, you know, this always happens. Uh, Patrick Ewing, I'm, you know, I'm doing research for a book that I'm working on uh, about the 90s next week. Patrick Ewing tried to come back um, kind of later in the postseason, and, and that, that can be really rough. Um Heck, I covered the Knicks in, you know, 2012-2013. Amari Stoudemire had missed most of that season with knee issues and with knee surgery and tried to come back in the second round of the playoffs against a top-ranked defense in the in the Pacers and that just generally doesn't go well. And um let alone the NBA Finals against a you know, arguably the best defender in the league, you know, I think you could make that argument about Kawhi. Um certainly one of the most uh, fundamentally sound and, and one of the strongest. So, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I get that Durant is Durant, but it's just, and, and he makes a positive difference for them. Not, no one was ever going to doubt that, but it, it doesn't make it easier to, to just kind of hop into a situation like that at the very highest level when you haven't played for a month 
when you're still not completely healed. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this whole situation is super sad. Um, and it really is, as you mentioned, this casting kind of a shadow over the series. Um, if we step back a little bit uh, and talk um, more about two Raptors players in particular, I think one, I've looked at this entire playoff run by Pascal Siakam, and it's been one of the rarer things I've seen where – I mean, Pascal is, if you just look by age, I think he's 24, 25. Like, he's not necessarily super young by NBA standards. But in terms of experience, um, he is very, very young. And this is the first year he's ever been in a position where he's starting. And then he's being relied upon to be the second option. And he's had ups and downs throughout the playoffs. But the fact that he stuck it through... um, and been a steady and well, not steady, but like a, at least been a positive contributor all throughout the finals uh, in this entire run has just been super impressive to me. I, I um I know Siakam is probably one of your favorite players to watch as well. Um, I, I just think that this whole entire playoff run could be a huge learning experience for Pascal in terms of what are the next areas of his games to improve, and from what you've seen, um, you know what are those what are those points because i feel like pascal if he could add like a, a consistent you know three point shot which we've seen now has sort of died on him i think he's 0 of 12 so far, uh in the finals right now um he hasn't made one since game 1 of the series 0 for 3 yikes. 0 for 3 0 for 2 0 for 4 over the last four games yeah and he and he low key got benched um in the fourth quarter or at least his last 7 minutes of uh, game 5 because I think in part was because the Warriors were packing the paint so much and Pascal just couldn't seem to hit a shot. But, I mean, what would you say Pascal's next area of development should be after seeing this playoff run and how it unfolded? It's, it's exactly what you just kind of – I don't think you came right out and said it, but I think you, you kind of hinted at it. It's his consistency. And, and I think, you know, we've seen him a couple times now um, going back to the Milwaukee series where, you know, I'm pretty sure he had 24 somewhere in that range one night and then was in single digits the next game um and and he hasn't had single digits in this series necessarily but he has had games where he kind of fluctuates between i mean game one uh 32 points game two 12 but the 12 came on 16 17 whatever it was shot attempts so i I just feel like that there are kind of these wild swings and i actually think that it's not necessarily his fault um, I, you know, Draymond was the first one to say, you know, Siakam is a guy now in this series, meaning that we have to show him respect and can't just let him get whatever he wants in transition and then be able to expect to be able to stop him uh, after he gets it going. And, and so teams kind of decide to play him more aggressively. And then it kind of, you know, I think depending on how aggressive they get, it kind of takes him out of the game a little bit. Um, and also the fact that, you know, similar to other guys that we've seen that are just freaks. So Giannis, Simmons, uh, you know, LeBron earlier in his career, you just kind of dare them to shoot and you would rather them take their chances with a jump shot than you would them using their athleticism to kind of barrel their way to the basket. And so, you know, part of it, he, he obviously has become a better shooter, but, um, Anytime you can have a stretch for four straight games where you don't hit a three and you're kind of struggling with your outside shot, outside shot like that, um, that's still an area that he could improve on. I, I feel like um, I'm somewhat surprised. I, I love Siakam. He's easily one of my favorite players to watch in the league, uh, partly because of what he can do on defense as well. I just think he's a well-rounded player who, in very short order, has gotten much better from the corner. 
Um, and, and obviously I think the next stage for him is kind of being more consistent and a better shooter from other areas than just the corner. So, um, you know, he's had moments where he's hit shots above the break. Um, I know he's right at 30% or slightly worse than there, um, worse than that from there. And so if he can start hitting that shot, I, I kind of feel like he can take different angles to the basket. I've been shocked that the Warriors and other teams that haven't basically forced him into the lane as far as, you know, that spin move where he wants to get back to his right hand. Um, I, I, I would assume at some point the teams are going to get more savvy about that and kind of take more away from him. So I think he's going to have to develop the ability to, to go to his left a little bit more often and kind of go toward the lane a little bit more often than what he has this year. But again, I, I just think the basic thing for him is consistency. I, I think he's got all the tools and it's been really cool to see him pull it together as quickly as he has. And I think, you know, really, um, I mean, obviously Kawhi has been the biggest catalyst in all this stuff, but if, if it had just been basically a straight Kawhi for DeRozan sort of move, and Siakam hadn't shown this kind of jump, I don't think they would have had any chance of getting this far. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Their other, like, power forward option with OG and Anobi, and, like, I love OG, but I don't think his long-term future is at the four position. I think he's a big three, and he should just stay that way. But, um, yeah. yeah, Pascal has really bailed the Raptors out. And the fact that he was, like, pretty much the first cut, like, he would have made all-NBA fourth team um, – is just kind of incredible to, to speak into his development. The other guy I want to talk about was um, Kyle Lowry, who, look, he, Kyle Lowry has been criticized, and then Kyle Lowry has been praised. And, and I'm almost out to the point where I'm like, every single take on Kyle Lowry is somewhat fit, like uh, false. Like, there's just there is not one accurate take on Kyle Lowry. And I think especially now, I think his, his performance is... Um, I mean, it's, there's just kind of hit or miss, you know? Sometimes he'll foul out. Sometimes he'll have an amazing game where he's got great passes. And he'll have, like, great 25-point passes or 25-point games. But then sometimes he'll have great 10-point games. It's just very hard to pin where Kyle Lowry is. But there's been this discussion recently of um, Kyle Lowry's Hall of Fame candidacy. And this is something that Eric Bledsoe, I think, he first brought it up sort of by himself uh, leading into the Milwaukee series where he said, I believe Kyle Lowry is a Hall of Fame-level player. And then CJ McCollum also recently asked that question. And, you know, you you being someone that really appreciates the nuances of the game and all the underlying stats uh, and those, you know, numbers have always supported Lowry's greatness. Like, how do you assess Lowry's Hall of Fame candidacy? Because if the Raptors do successfully win the title here, he kind of has everything, you know, you would really want in terms of uh, a Hall of Fame candidacy. He just doesn't have necessarily eye-popping counting stats, but you know, the impact on winning is undeniable at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll i be really honest. I, I, I have a, a little bit of a hard time with with seeing Lowry as a Hall of Famer. I mean, he actually may have a slightly better case than what I've realized. But I, but I think what makes it a little tough, and it's 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 not to, to downplay how, how really good he's been, Um I mean, I think he kind of flew under the radar on his own teams for a, a good chunk of his career before he got where he is now. Um, and I don't necessarily know that that's his fault. I mean, it, it is interesting. I, I saw people kind of talking about how, I don't know if hothead is the right word or malcontent is the right word, but, you know, the idea that he was kind of viewed as, as both um, earlier in his career and kind of contrasting that with the idea that it, that the 
part owner of the Warriors shoved him the other day and Lowry's restraint in that. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy Kyle. I really enjoy talking to him. I, I think part of what's tough for me is just that when, when you kind of compare him against the other point guards of what this era will be, he's been a consistent all-star, but it's been, you know, we talked before about kind of this, the difference between the two conferences. You know, I, I just think the the other conference is just kind of so loaded at the same position. Um, he's been an all-star, but it's been, you know, partly because he's been among the better point guards in the East. Um, and I really hate the idea that, you know, it feels unfair to say that someone's all-star candidacy shouldn't be as meaningful. But, you know, I feel like one for, for starters, one, Five all-star appearances don't really move the needle for me in the same way that maybe seven, eight, or nine would, uh, which I, I guess that should be a pretty obvious thing. But I also think even if the Raptors win a title, um, I think I'm more willing to kind of consider people that are integral to like multiple championships mm. as opposed to one or multiple finals appearances as opposed to one. Um, it's a little tougher for me, and I feel like it's a little tougher to argue when you're talking about a single appearance. Now, if the Raptors go on to do this again next year, you know, let's say they win this year, they do this again next year, and they make the finals for third year, I don't even think they have to win at that point. But if if we're talking about that, and at that point, you know, Lowry probably makes another all-star team or two because of it, you know, because they would be a team that gets way more attention going into next season, you know, based on the strength of making the finals this year and, you know, presumably doing it again next year. If all that were to happen, it, it's a different conversation. Um, and he has been really integral to, to them and, and everything that they do. I think he is better than what his statistics show because of the, the defensive side. I think he's very, very smart player. Um, and he has made a couple of deep playoff runs now at this point, albeit ones that, you know, that didn't turn out the way that he and the team would have liked. I just think I, I have a little – bit of a a tough time kind of getting there with that argument um partly because i I do feel like he has again consistency issues and i think sometimes he can kind of disappear in certain games i don't really think you're normally considering games when you talk about hall of fame candidacy but i just think there there might just be too many other guys at the position that i would have taken before him from his own era um and i think that that alone kind of makes it a little tougher for me um I'd have to sit down and kind of count them all out to make sure that, you know, that that's exactly how I feel. But I, I feel like even if I studied it for a while, that I would probably come to the conclusion that there are probably at least five or six other guys that I would have considered more Hall of Fame caliber before I get to Kyle. Yeah, I hear you. I, I think I'm also very borderline on this because I think the resume is very impressive. Like the fact that um, like he has the gold medal. He has an All-NBA appearance. He has, for me, five All-Star appearances. I, I get it. I'm like, that's, that's kind of enough for me. I think he might make it next year as well. So let's say it's six. Like, it's not, I don't know. It, it's just like, it seems like it's almost enough. But I just, the, the one hurdle I have is almost like, in my sort of mental image of what a Hall of Famer is, they have to have like this certain skill level. And it just always feels like with Kyle, like he is very like smart um, and he does a lot of great things to affect winning, and ultimately that's all it's really about. But there's just some, th- there's just something when I watch the game, and I'm just like, th- the skill level is just isn't as high as what I would imagine a normal um, Hall of Famer to be. But then the counterpoint would be like, 
the one guy that Kyle gets compared to a lot, sort of because of the trajectory of their careers, is Chauncey Billups. And Chauncey isn't in the Hall of Fame yet, but I feel like Chauncey is a guy where people are going to debate whether or not Chauncey should go to the Hall of Fame. Um, and I think ultimately he's one of those guys, because he's so well-liked, because he was such a respected player, um, that he will ultimately eventually make the Hall of Fame. And if you really look at Kyle's numbers versus Chauncey's numbers, and in terms of just their careers, Chauncey obviously being that uh, the champion with the, the, the Pistons team, and Kyle, you know, I, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but could be the champion with this Raptors team. Right. There, there is a bit of similarity with Chauncey. I wouldn't say Kyle's as good as Chauncey was. No, there, there definitely is. Think about it. I mean, I think the, the, the real comparison, I think, between the two of them, a little different, but, I mean, Chauncey... Chauncey was never valued enough to the point where he was able to stay with one team at the beginning of his career. So it's very yeah. similar in that regard um, for different reasons. But Chauncey bounced around a lot and then, you know, wasn't even really cast in the right position for a long time early on in his career. I think the thing with Chauncey that I think sets him apart and I think actually to me in my mind would make him more to me more. I won't even say worthy, but, like, I understand the argument more. Chauncey also was part of a team where there wasn't, like, one standout star on his championship team. And because of it, I kind of feel like it's one of those things almost like with an all-star game where when you have a team that doesn't have one true star, the 60-win Hawks, um, a team like that, I, I feel like at that point you you either kind of take almost everybody from that group and put them in or you take no one mm-hmm. and you're not going to take no one from that group and so who how do we how do we put this team and how do we honor this team in the hall of fame whereas with Kyle's situation I don't think he'd even really be firmly in the conversation if the title's not won and that might be yeah. true of Chong as well and I think that's important to point out but I think like if if the Raptors lose this series I don't think that we'll hear much about that sort of argument. Um, and I think it's also very clear that Kawhi will have been the driving force. And I think that's okay. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, I also would have to look. But I think in the modern era, since we've kind of had all NBA teams, that that is, I think, a greater threshold than all-star teams, obviously, because you're cutting the number of people that get that honor in half mm-hmm. compared to all-star. So one one all NBA appearance and, and and it being a third team appearance, I think that's a little tougher for me. Yeah, um, I think most guys that make it probably have multiple all NBA appearances. But I, I, I understand the argument. And like I said, I I could also see a universe existing in where they win this title and they either compete for another one or they win another one. And at that point, I mean, I, I looked at it while we're here talking on basketball reference uh, they they have like a hall of fame probability estimate mm-hmm. for every player he's he's at 46% basically so um, that's borderline you know you, you could be you could be a lot worse than that and i'll put it this way there are people that get talked about it would all be one of them who have much lower estimates than that that are probably going to get there now i think that um, winning titles and winning them consistently even as a role player gives you a better opportunity to do it than not ever winning one and being uh, a, a best player or a second best player on a team that gets close to the title or gets close to the conference finals every year. That's closer to what Kyle has been. And um, 
So, you know, I, I think that Iguodala would get a lot more consideration than him unless Kyle wins a title or two. And and if he does that, I think he will probably put himself even more in that conversation. But but like you said, I mean, it, it's it's a question I had not even given thought to before this week. Um, but even that number, 46%, tells you that um, it might be in play for him. I, I think that they'd have a lot more winning to do. Um, I think they probably would have to win two titles for me to really think about it more and, and feel to a point where I would say, yeah, I think he should be, but, but I mean, it's, it, it's something that he could do. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I do think that he probably deserves more consideration for it than what we've said, but I do think it's tough at the end of the day. I think that, you know, he's not someone that I've thought of as a hall of fame point guard. And I think it's more so because of who else has been in the league at the same time. But, um, but if he wins a couple titles, I think it's something that, you know, probably will happen. Yeah, I like to think in an alternate universe, Kyle um, repositioned himself a little bit deeper in the corner yesterday, and so when the swing pass got to him, Draymond didn't block a shot, and somehow he hit a walk-off playoffs finals game winner, which I think is just exceedingly rare. Um, And if that had happened, I think this conversation would have been like, you know, Honestly, that one shot alone might have been good enough, but recent bias, yeah. But no, I, I actually kind of, I mean, because that's there are, that's that's the thing that one, that separates, I think, uh, Chauncey from Kyle for me. It's just like, I mean, Chauncey's Mister Big Shot, and then Kyle's right. reputation is just like literally the opposite, you know. And right, yeah, I think from that perspective, I just think that again, it, it something with, with something like Hall of Fame, it's not even just necessarily. Uh, a statistical input of hey you could feed in all these numbers and then they could spit out this sort of you know probability and at a certain threshold you put them in like it's also just sort of the reputation and sort of things that go into sure. that and i think for that perspective kyle's reputation being what it is like it's it's unfortunate but i think that's always gonna you know go against them yeah no I, I think i actually i mean obviously durant was the person that we all felt bad for yesterday but i i kind of felt a little twinge of kind of like man that's kind of sucks that you know it was such a weird reaction to kyle missing that shot yesterday too um because it was kind of like how did he miss it that badly and then to see the photos and it's very clear that draymond got a fingertip on the ball kind of in a i won't say completely similar scenario but the knicks you know as i'm working on this book about them in the 90s the Knicks had a chance to win a series. Now, they were on the road in Houston, and um, Akeem Olajuwon was able to get literally a fingertip on the ball um, to force Starks to miss right at the end of a game where the Knicks were stuck on three wins at that point and then ended up losing the series a game later. Um, but I felt bad for Kyle just from the standpoint of like it looking like a really horrible shot in real time and how did he miss it that badly. When, when you slow it down, you realize that it was blocked. Um, so it would have been a great moment for him. It would have been a, a heck of a way to win the series. Um, but, you know, like I said, they've still got two more opportunities. They may not need a heroic individual moment like that. They've already had one, which, you know, normally if you get one like that, that's that's a pretty cool thing in the first place. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, for sure. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. Before we get to your prediction for game six, I'm going to hit you with rapid fire. So um, I'll start with this. Your favorite player growing up and why? I mean, it was it was Jordan, hands down. Okay. Are you I, from Chicago? I grew up in Chicago. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I don't feel like I was completely into basketball until – you know, the the run at the end of his career with the Bulls. So, um, you know, obviously that last that last game against the Jazz. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like growing up in Chicago, you know, it almost has to be your favorite player um, during that era. Um, give me one basketball or sports, a sports book that you would recommend everyone to read. Um, you know – I, I really like Breaks of the Game by uh, okay. Halberstam. I mean, it just the idea that it, it, it's so <laughs> so crazy to work on a book now, and that's obviously about the Blazers, um, going back to like the Walton era. It's so crazy to be working on a book and to read stuff where people had the sort of access where they can fly with the team and, and be um, – you know, have that sort of access where they can just talk to people um, and do it without any sort of it's, – it's just kind of like at its purest form and like at a time where stuff was so different and now just kind of how guarded everybody is and, and also how much social media changes everything um, to where you wonder how much stuff can kind of stay under wraps for as long as it does. Mm-hmm. So I really like that one. I also really like the Jordan Rules uh, by yeah, Sam Smith. Yeah, that's the classic one too. So I've I've always enjoyed that one as well. Yeah, I, I was really afraid that based on your background that you you would say something like Basketball on Paper by Dean Alt, which is a good book and pretty, no, pretty no, revolutionary. No. But I mean, I, I took that to like a ski resort once to read, and I was like, this is the driest read. And I'd like, I just, I don't know, I ended up picking a newspaper or something. No, that that's actually what I was gonna say. I mean, I, I I've said it before, and you know, I I think people that have listened to me in enough podcasts probably know. So I I really do not like math. I really do not. I don't love numbers. I mean, it's, it's, I know it probably sounds really, you work for 538. Right? <laughs> I just don't, I just, I think they're a lot of times the clearest way to get a point across, but I don't, I, I mean, I basically teach a, a grad school journalism class at Northwestern and I start every class by saying, look, I don't really like math at all. I avoided it like the plague when I was in college it was always my worst subject in school, in high school. I just think it's important to know how to use them. And it's, you know, it's, I think 
particularly in sports, it's good. But I think it's hard to read about. Like my girlfriend was telling me when I told, when I signed on to do this next book, she's like, "Well, you know, given your specialty, you, you should do like one chapter that's just numbers." I'm like, uh, "No," because I <laughs> I just don't. It's really dry to read about that. And I mean, yeah. I, I think honestly, my my editor and publisher wouldn't want that either. Like I just just because I I know how to use them doesn't mean I really love them. I, I think that. You can go too far with them, and I think reading a whole book about kind of the implementation of stats, like I've done it before, but I, it, it kind of emboldens me to not stay on that path forever. I want that's part of the reason I want to do the because to show that I can do more than just the number stuff because I feel like it can get a little tiring after a while if you don't you know show that you can do something else. Do you ever miss the Knicks? Um. Not really now. I mean, I, I, I miss I miss writing about them and the fans having just such an appreciation. I mean, I think that's an amazing so fan much base. Yeah, so much of the coverage there is just the tabloid stuff, and so I, you know, I obviously don't write in that fashion, which mm-hmm. I think in some ways um, I wish I had because I feel like I would have been able to write a lot more fun stuff. But um, no, I mean, I, I think I. I wouldn't have been able to grow as a national reporter. I would be completely in the dark when it comes time to cover the finals and cover other stuff. Um, if I only was focusing on the Knicks, I think you just have to, you, you can't really grow, continue to grow after a while once you've been on a beat for so long. And I, I was only there for like four or five years, but I just kind of feel like the same things I was covering at the beginning of that era are like circling back and becoming like everything old becomes new again. Um, and I, I just think it, uh, it, it, it's, you know, I just think you have to experience something different and test yourself by watching the other teams in the league and by interviewing other people around the league to kind of grow. So I, I miss writing about them, but I think it, it was still for the best. And I think I'm more miss interacting with the fans and getting their feedback on what I'm writing. Yeah, I was gonna say. I, I got. I gotta say. I, I really personally miss you writing about the Knicks. Um, I just find the Knicks very entertaining as as a, as a team. Obviously, they're not great, but they're just entertaining. I appreciate it. Favorite. It Knicks- was. A, I will say this, it was a good test um, to write about them. I, I mean, it was funny because when I was at Michigan as a student, um, you know, more often than not, the teams at Michigan were really, really good, and so I was always covering teams that were winning, and it was kind of like boring to write about and then I, I got put on the women's basketball beat I think as a sophomore and they lost all the time and it was kind of like all right how do I write about this um, because now what I was complaining about about how it was boring to cover a winning team mm-hmm. then I was covering a team that was losing and wasn't really that motivated to talk about why they were losing so the Knicks I, you know I always got the question like Man, I would always get this from other people. Um, sometimes fans that really liked my writing, but were you know fans of a different team. And you know, I still get that now. Or people are like, I'm so happy you became a national guy because I loved your writing, but didn't really care about the Knicks much. And that was so me. they were like, man, <laughs> that was basically so, me. <laughs> yeah, and there are people that would basically reach out and be like, you deserve to cover a winning team. And um, you know, the irony is really funny. I actually had opportunities to kind of leave and cover other teams. And at one point I got an opportunity, an offer to write about the Spurs. I turned it down. But part of the reason I initially turned it down is I was like, this seems like it'll be a really hard beat to cover mm-hmm. because they just win all the time. And, you know, obviously that was before 
Kawhi and everything that happened last year and you know but like when a team is winning consistently and there's never any drama um I mean I guess from a playoffs perspective you you get a lot of opportunities to write cool stuff but um it, it gets really cha- I, I think it's really challenging to write about anything where it's relatively static and it's it's basically the same thing every year um where you know, th- there's no drama and there's no ups and downs. It's just kind of smooth sailing. And and so the Knicks were probably the, you know, the same thing as that, just on the other end of the spectrum um, where they were losing so consistently. But I, I guess in my mind, I never saw it that way because my first year on the beat was the Knicks um, winning 54 games. And so I didn't come in nearly as jaded as most people were. And I think that kind of impacted the way I wrote where, you know, it was very doomsday on that beat as far as the way a lot of people cover, covered it and still cover it. But I, I, I guess I didn't really have that perspective. And, you know, because of it, I kind of wrote about what their possibilities were in a best case and worst case scenario. and kind of tried to balance it more. And, and, and because of that, I got so many, you know, nice notes from the fans. I got Phil would email me and, and basically say that he, he really appreciated that he felt like. I gave the team a fair shake, um, you know, and, and would talk with Steve Mills and he would basically say the same thing. And he's like, look, we're around the team every day and we feel like we read your stuff every day and are still learning something that we even we may not have known or may not have noticed how dire something was or how drastic something was until we read your story wow. to put numbers to something. And so it was just that was kind of my task was just to try to inform fans of something that even if you're paying close attention, um, here's something you might not have known and, and here, what can I add to, you know, if you're struggling through the season to watch this team, that's not winning, let me at least make it worth it on some level to pick up on something that you might not have noticed. And so that's a fun challenge for me. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that I'll ever get back to covering a team on a beat again. Um, although this book kind of feels like that I'm not traveling, you know, to cover their games or anything, but I'm having to track down 110, 120 people to try to, you know, recap something that happened 30 years ago, um, you know, nine years worth of material from 30 years ago. Um, so, you know, that may be kind of a last hurrah as far as one big project that I do in the Knicks. But, um, but no, I was really fortunate to be able to do that. And I think it, you know, informed a lot of the way that I cover the league now just on a league-wide scale instead of the Knicks. Yeah, for sure. Um, favorite Carmelo Anthony hat? That's a that's a hilarious question to to follow it up with, but this is what I had on my list beforehand. I thought this was going to be rapid fire. I thought you were just going to say yes or no. To, do you miss the Knicks? But I, I, I figured, but it'll be I guess probably least favorite, but also most easy to roast was that that horrible like multicolored Willy Wonka hat that he had. Oh god, uh, where it was like the top hat. It wasn't a black top hat. Like I don't know what he was doing, but I why mean, was he wearing so many hats? He, I mean, he, he had this weird thing at the end of his next tenure where he decided he wanted to be like a connoisseur of all these things. So he would, I remember he was like, he became a big wine connoisseur at one point. He, um, he became like, he, I think he called himself like, it wasn't the God of timepieces, but it was something like that where he considered himself like a timepiece master. And so he he was like a big wash aficionado for a quick minute. Um, there were the hats. There were the, I'm trying to think. Oh, I remember I wrote a story about this too. He randomly like decided to pick up chess 
at like age 28 or 27, um, which is extremely rare that people learn how to play the game at that age. That's late. As opposed to just learning how to play it as a kid. So I, I just kind of like Carmelo would decide unilaterally to just get interested in something. And then like, instead of it being a gradual sort of interest, it would just be like, he was totally all in on it. And it would just become an everyday sort of fad for him. But I don't know why or when he got into hats like that, but he, I mean, he had some that were really cool. He also had, I mean, he had one where he was on the cover of ESPN magazine, I think, where he was like in a beret and I think it was meant to look like a Black Panther. Um, so I like that one too because of the message that it sent. But mm-hmm. yeah, the Willy Wonka one was definitely my least favorite. Yeah. Uh, I got to say a special shout out for the time Carmelo came dressed to the game looking like a extra from Red Tails. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that one was great too. Uh, it's my favorite one. He looks just like a, a general from like 1940. Um why did the Knicks trade a first-round pick for Bargnani, and was it because the Nets had just made a huge splash across um, the city with getting Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and also, I guess, Jason Terry? I don't think it was because of that. I think um, there, there were two or three reasons. One, um, I want to say at the time that Bargnani was a CAA client. Okay. Um, the Knicks were really, really um, big on – kind of pleasing CAA is the agency that Carmelo was with as well. I want to say that Carmelo's was Wasn't free agency, JR with them too? JR was with them as well, and, and they did favors for JR as well. Um, they signed JR's brother, who had, you know, literally no other team in the league had interest in. Um, they signed JR's brother to um, a training camp deal. And then not just that, but then – put him on the roster and before they did it Mike Woodson admitted that JR's brother would get essentially get a closer look and more attention and more priority because he was JR's but I, I couldn't I still to this day <laughs> of all the things Mike Woodson admitted like could not believe that he admitted that to us in the media That's but amazing. Um, I I remember Chris Smith playing fewer minutes than any other player in the preseason um, so it was like, okay, you're not even like testing this dude out. So he's just getting put on the team without like he was horrible in like the three minutes that he played. But he, I think he played less than 20 minutes the whole preseason. It's like, so he's played less minutes than anybody. He's not being looked at by anybody else. Like you're not at risk of losing him um, to anybody. And then Woodson admitted that he would get more priority because he was Jared's brother. Like it was insane. So there was that. And this was also after Jr. I mean, this is going down a rabbit hole, but like Jr. had um, so he resigned um, on his bird rights, but um, he right after resigning, it came out that Jr. either had surgery right after, um, or like I think on his knee or on his knees or something, and then not just that, but then also got suspended for like weed stuff. Um, all within like the same month or two after he hit a good, so like he started the next season with a suspension because of the drugs. He basically had kind of, I, I guess the next claim that they knew, I think about some of the stuff, but they also like renegotiated his contract, um, because he essentially seemed like he hadn't signed the contract in good faith in terms of letting them know what was wrong with his knee, um, that he was hiding it so that he wouldn't lose value in free agency. So there was that, but they also put his brother on the team. Um, 
And then I remember Brandon Jennings, uh, Brandon Jennings kind of making fun of the Knicks and Chris Smith for it and JR basically threatening him on Twitter and then JR getting fined for that. So that was its own thing. But there's that. Bargnani ended up coming to the Knicks because, and, and I feel like this is less to talk about, but um, Amari Stoudemire needed a surgery during the offseason that the Knicks just didn't tell anybody about until much, much later. Um, and because he had the surgery, um, Amari wasn't ready to go to start the season, so the Knicks got him both as insurance but also like as someone that would be able to start the season because Amari just had surgery on his knees. So um, that was part of it. Part of it, I think, was to please CAA. Um, part of it also was that Mike Woodson really wanted to um, – to spread the floor okay. because they because of the way they had lost the year before against Indiana. So he felt like they didn't have a floor spacing option, even though he didn't use their best floor spacing option that year, <laughs> which would have been Chris Copeland. But right, um, right. but that was the reason is that basically even though Bargnani very clearly had started to regress really bad not even started, had regressed really badly from yes. three um, to where he was only like a thirty percent three point shooter, and one of the worst one, one of the worst volume three point shooters in the league. Um, the Knicks convinced themselves that Bargnani was a, a still a three point shooter. And I remember literally my first story, my first analysis piece on Bargnani was the day after they made the trade, and um, I can't remember what my headline on the story was for the journal, but it was something about like the three point shooter that couldn't shoot or the three point shooter that can't shoot. Or something. So, like, I was dead set against the trade. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if you had traded straight up for Novak, I probably still would have said no at the time. But not just that, but they also gave up, like, multiple first-rounders. And I'm protected. Just, what are you doing? And <laughs> so that, you know, and, and, and to top it all off, to me, it, it made it look as if that was why Glenn Grunwald uh, was fired, is that he did not want to make the trade, I don't think. And I think people around the situation would tell you that he he wasn't the one that signed off on it. And so when he wouldn't sign off on it and Dolan wanted it done, you know, both because Orniani oh was a name, but also that um, that basically that it would please the CAA situation as well ahead of Carmelo's free agency, Dolan went above um, Grunwald's head and basically said, we're doing this. And so that was how the deal got done. Um, but it also explained why um, I want to say that that also kind of played a role, too, in the – I can't remember. There are so many times that Ujiri got the best of the Knicks. And, but yeah. um, but I, I want to say, like, when we talk about the Lowry thing and why Lowry was never traded to the Knicks, that was allegedly one of the reasons is that Dolan was really um, – afraid of kind of getting fleeced again by Ujiri. So they kind of pulled the whole shump for Lowry deal off the table, which of course now we're talking about whether Lowry belongs in the hall of fame at some point. So it tells you made the better decision there, but there were a lot of factors there um, as to why that happened with, um, with, with Bargnani, but it was, none of it made sense. I mean, it was very clear that it didn't make sense. The Knicks overreacted to, Novak not being able to get loose in the playoffs um, from a shooting standpoint, but in no way, shape, or form is Barniani a better option. And, you know, I think a lot of people felt like he was kind of already washed up, and he was. 
Yeah, I was gonna say because I all remember from that time was I think the amnesty rule had been coming had come into play, and it was a fierce debate right. whether the Raptors should use the amnesty on Andrea or Linus Claza. And the I fact remember. that Barnetti got u- turned into like uh, a first round pick, then it just made the decision much easier. Um, also, I'm uh, just really remember. happy that. It was crazy too because the Bulls were, I think the Bulls were interested in Barnani too. And it was kind of like, so it it tells you a lot about a bidding race for Barnani. Sizes and like not being smart and why we we hear about the same two, three, four teams. You know, I I think at this point we talk about Lakers, Knicks, Kings, Bulls. And, you know, that, and, and honestly, in fairness to the Knicks, I kind of feel like they've started to normalize for the most part. They obviously traded. Porzingis, but I think the reasons for that have come out, and also the you know the conduct stuff and the conduct questions or allegations, whatever you want to call it, that have come out. Like it, it kind of makes more sense as to why they got away from that. But you know, at the time, the fact that certain teams were the only teams that were even interested in something like that at the time, like a Barniani trade, tells you everything you probably needed to know about it. Yeah, I gotta say, as just like a general NBA fan, like. Giving the Knicks franchise and that fan base Barnani and also the kind of content that Barnani end up producing in terms of just like yeah. the highlight reels of I mean it's really low light reels and just like the three pointer that he took that one time he tried to dunk I mean there's just so many plays that Barnani made that just like in the hands specifically of Knicks fans um, it just it just turned into a magical moment I think you know ultimately the, the Knicks weren't going to do much uh, that franchise even if Barnani did pan out but like. In terms of just memorable moments, Barnani is probably one of the most uh, memorable Knicks. Um, I'm going to ask you one more before we go to the prediction. Um, why did you get into sports writing? And uh, this is obviously very difficult to to ask in terms of as a rapid fire, but um, you know, I'm, all, no, I'm okay. always curious. I mean, I haven't made it much of a rapid fire to begin with, so that's okay. I, I mean, um, I asked you about the Knicks. I, I figured you were going to go into. There's a lot of memories when no. it comes to the Knicks. Okay. Um. So, I mean, I when I was a kid, um, as much as I claim to hate numbers and not really be good with them, um, I used to play my video games and stuff. I watched the game. I watched baseball. Baseball was kind of my real big sport, I think, because it was what I was best at as a kid. Um, and so I had, you know, a baseball video game, and, and I remember it was one of those games where they would post the players' regular season statistics Every time they came up to bat, so I, I got to a point where I remembered Frank Thomas hitting three twenty three in like the ninety three ninety four season or whatever it was. You know, shout um, out the big hurt. I mean, so that was my favorite baseball player by far. Um, yeah. Probably still is, but um, think about stuff like that. I mean, my mom was always really kind of in awe of how much I dedicated, much time I dedicated to like memorizing statistics on top of just being in the sports as a whole. And so she kind of always thought, you know, maybe I'll become like a sports agent or I'll go into law and become an agent. Um, I never really had that interest at all. Um, but I did feel like I really liked writing, um, even just for English classes, stuff like that, but also really loved sports. And so I still remember kind of like it was yesterday, my best friend, um, we would talk every day after school and I'd ask him what he was up to. And he told me one day about this class that he'd started taking, I think like our sophomore year. And as he was explaining it, I just got so jealous 
uh, because he'd started taking a journalism class at my high school. And the way he was describing it was just so cool. I was like, wait, so you get to do this and you get to do that and you get to like interview people and write it up. And like, I was like so jealous and mm-hmm. could not wait to sign up for the class, but had to because it was, you know, at the end of a school year basically. So, you know, the first elective I signed up for as a junior was to take journalism. And at my high school, we had like a two part journalism class, basically like an intro journalism class where it's like literally people have never done it before. And then if you do it for that one year and then really like it and you're, you're halfway decent at it, even if you're bad at it, you probably can join. Then you, the second part of the class or the second year of the class is the actual newspaper that you get to work on. And I think the paper at our school came out three days a week or I'm sorry, three, three times, three, every three weeks. And, um, and so we, you know, we had four sections in it, including sports, so I would write about that. I didn't make my varsity basketball team. And so I played the two years before that um, and, you know, had a lot of friends on the team. We ended up having a lottery pick. Julian Wright and played for the Raptors. This what? is someone that I played growing up. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, good, good buddy of mine. I've run into him a few times over the years. Okay. I actually ran into him during the finals, um, like probably four or five years ago in Miami. Um but yeah, he and I like grew up together and like played junior high together. Um, and so it was, you know, because I was so tight with those guys from having played with them for so long, I never hit the growth spurt that a lot of them did. I'm only about 5'9". Um, and so, you know, that was fun kind of covering them. And my high school lost to Sean Livingston's high school. Um, and basically, you know, I think that ended up being a four-point game. And basically lost that game because Julian was in foul trouble. But anyway, um, you know, I loved – I just thought it was the coolest thing, like getting to go to games, getting to talk to people, um, getting to kind of tell stories in that way. And on top of that, it wasn't even just the writing that I enjoyed, but I I did the play-by-play for our school's radio station for our high school basketball games. I also did TV. Um, We had a TV station at my high school, so – I did all three and just kind of felt like the idea that you could do this in high school and then you mean to tell me once I get out of college, I do this, I get paid for something like this. So that was kind of where I was coming from. And I, even in college, when I got to Michigan, doing the college newspaper for 60, 70 hours a week and getting paid maybe $200 per month for that. It's the best. Um, <laughs> like, I didn't care. It was yeah. just like, the idea that I was going to be able to do this and I was doing it basically for no pay mm-hmm. kind of showed me, man, when I get to do this and I'm actually getting paid, like this will just feel like icing on, on a cake already. So um, I realized I was going to fall in love with it from the very first minute I set foot in my high school journalism class. I Maybe even before that because I'm telling you, like my best friend was telling me about his journalism class before I was even enrolled in one. And I immediately was just kind of like, man, that sounds amazing. And it, it was even better than what I thought it would be um, from when he described it. So I've known for a long time. I just feel like it's it's so cool to be able to tell stories and it's so cool to be able to, um, to you know, frankly, even just to read, to go on a website that I write for and see by Chris Herring, and, you know, to get text messages from people when you appear on television or when you, when they read something that you wrote or, you know, I feel like what's happens a lot more often now 
which, you know, I, I take it as a pretty big compliment when people say, I read a paragraph of this story and immediately knew it was yours just because you have such a distinctive style. So, wow. um, that, that, that's really cool. And I, I just kind of feel like, um, you know, a book will be like probably along the same lines times 10. Um, when you work on something that is that lengthy and hopefully will stand the test of time as far as just being, you know, no one's ever written a comprehensive book about that Nick's era, that entire era, you know, going all the way back to Riley. Um, and that's something that will, you know, if, if it's done well and done the right way, will, you know, hopefully outlive me. Um, you know, something that people can read and when you talk about that era, you know, get a better sense for exactly what it was. That's really cool, man. Um, and, and shout out student journalism one time. Very important <laughs> to support student journalism. Uh, it does provide a ton of opportunities for people. It is. And, and I think at that level too, because I, I, like I said, I teach graduate school journalism and, and really enjoy doing it. I'm, I'm taking time away from it now so I can do the book. But um, there's something about that that I don't, that even though it's really rewarding, I feel like it's kind of an ivory tower. You know, teaching at a private school like Northwestern, yeah. uh, where kids have to pay anywhere fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars for one year of school. A lot of people can't do that, and and even within that, like a lot of people aren't getting paid that kind of money once they become full time journalists. And so to pay that much to enter a field that doesn't pay you that much, yeah, is just brutal. So I kind of feel like it's even more important to kind of get it integrated at the high school level so that people can kind of get a sense of whether they might want to do it in college um, and give people the experience. Cause I, I actually feel like that's what helped me to stand out is that I, I had already been doing it before I got to college. And so I already knew I liked it. I already started to try to develop and get better at it before I ever got to college because I was enjoying it so much in high school. So um, anytime you can get a head start on that at a time where other people are still very undecided about majors and, you know, I, I, a lot of people email me and say, how can I get into the industry? And a lot of times they're doing it after they've gotten out of college. Mm -hmm. And by that point, it's really hard to help somebody, um, you know, whereas you can do a lot to help somebody if they realize it when they're in college. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then I, I guess last question, uh, who wins game six? And, and yeah, who wins game six and why is it the Raptors? <laughs> Come on, Chris, pick the Raptors, please. Um, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, I won't be surprised if it is the Raptors. I I, I picked the Raptors for game five, and I, I guess maybe at this point, four games in a row that have been won by the road team, it would be smarter to pick the Raptors. Um, I, I just have a little bit of a hard time seeing the Warriors not get it done, getting it done at Oracle in a last game there. And mm -hmm. maybe that's just like a, a narrative sort of thing which I normally don't kind of subscribe to that, but um, I can't imagine how wild the atmosphere is going to be. Like, I really do kind of feel like it'll be one of the more emotional games yeah, for that sure. they've had there, aside from the fact that it'll be the last game they've ever played there. Um, and and the fact that, you know, in the aftermath of what just happened with KD, um, I, I just, to me, it was weird to to see the Raptors and their fans just kind of take over that stadium, you know, one that we, we call it Roracle sometimes just because of how loud it gets. Um, and, and, you know, I think to some extent that should leave a bad taste in the fans' mouths in, in Oakland. And now, you know, what already emotional scene um, with it being the last game there, with the whole thing with KD now, 
I just kind of feel like there's going to be so much motivation to find a way to at least get a seventh game to give that away to the fans kind of as a farewell. Um, they may not be able to do it. You know, again, I, I think that the, the Raptors are deeper. The Raptors have been better all along in this series with the exception of two real runs that the Warriors have made, um, you know, not counting KD and, and that stress that he had because he's not going to be there anymore. So, you know, I, I think the Raptors have shown they're the better team. So it's hard to bet against them, but I, for some reason it just feels like the Warriors are, aren't going to lose a game at home. Yeah, it, it would be a very strange ending. To, but uh, I, but I, I, I do still think the Raptors find a way to win the series, you know. And, and that, even that feels kind of crazy to say it the way I just said it. Like, they're going to have Game 7 at home. They should win the series. But I think that they'll, they'll get one more out of the two, whether it's tomorrow at Oracle or if it's um, – if it's going to be game seven at home. All right. Well, there you go, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. Um, read everything Chris Herring writes. Seriously. I mean, um, like to me, the way I look at it, um, like basketball media, it's, it's, it's a little bit formulaic at the end of the day. Um, like you got like, you know, newsbreakers, you got like hot take columnists and like, you know, uh, beat writers and, you know, the stats and video guys are really heavily into that stuff. But like, there's just a couple of writers that um, like, that just break the mold and really, um, you should always devote some time to like I think like you know like Alex Wong for example here in Toronto is one of those mm-hmm. guys who is just has such a unique perspective on the game and he tells very interesting stories and I feel like Chris you're the same way um, and so um, you know I, I, I just I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast man thank you so much for for what you just said and, and for making the time I know we've we've tried a couple times to, to make this work over the course of the final so Thank you for um, for the patience and, and continuing to circle back. But thank you for having me on. I really appreciate you. All right. Uh, read all of Chris's work at 538. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I guess uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, I will. I, so tomorrow. I will not be there early enough to, to be at practice, but I will see you. I, I will definitely be there in Oakland. All right. I'll catch you game six. All right, man. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.